Welcome to the Operatic Pastcast, a presentation and preservation of operatic memories and impressions, produced by Donald Collop. Episode 127. The 1959-1960 season of the Metropolitan Opera found Alfred Hubey as chief usher for Rudolf Bing's tenth season as general manager. Mr. Hubey's memories include a particular performance of Andrea Chenier with Ettore Bastianini and Carlo Bergonzi, the departure of Antonietta Stella, the short-lived policy of banning curtain calls, a heartfelt remembrance of Anna Maffo, and Zeka Milanov as a teacher. Part 5 of 5. The Chenier on March 5th, 1960, the day after Leonard Warren's death, was still Milanoff, but it was Bastianini who was absolutely incredible. For me, Bastianini was the best Gerard I ever heard. In those days, that performance was supposed to be legendary. Uh, for me, it was Bastianini. And Milanov, by that time, wasn't the Madalena she was. The only, only thing I have to say, it might be on my own personal opinion, 
Bergonzi as Chenier compared to Delmonico was, I don't know, he sang beautifully, uh, but it was, um, it was like Mighty Mouse, you know. I hate to say that. Bergonzi in Aida, his debut, with Stella. Stella had a very good-sized voice with wonderful high notes, a perfect Aida, and Bergonzi sang very tastefully. Bueling didn't sing Aida, at least at the Met that I heard, but the repertoire he sang, the voice was not much bigger than Bergonzi's, but it had much more carrying power, and it had an incredible top. Bergonzi had a very good top, too, but being a former baritone, it didn't blossom like Burling's. But Bergonzi as Chenier, I, I have to say, for my personal opinion, everybody always said, what a wonderful artist. Well, you know, I appreciate that. I, I, I happen to know Carl many years later. I appreciate his artistry in Balo, in the Puccini repertoire, not in Gioconda, as he did some years later, but certainly not as Chenier. I don't even have it in my memory book, to tell the truth. <laughs> I'd heard Bastianini in a concert with Tibaldi and Delmonico some years earlier. That someone booked the Met for practically nothing, and they sang duets and trios. And that's the first time I really heard Bastianini singing that repertoire, and they sang their hearts out. And I heard him sing the Nobica della Patria. It was, it was heaven. But it was an interesting season when you think about the number of debuts of people that were big big favorites at the Met and the way he cast things. And also, it had some disappointments. Again, the much of the season were because of Curtis Verna stepping in, who wasn't a bad singer. She was a very good singer. I think her reputation was soiled very much by the fact that she, she was always a cover stepping in. People took her for granted. And then some of the Aida's, Lucina Mora sang, the most important thing was because of the solo curtain calls the Met lost Stella it was a strange situation Stella had a wonderful sound talent as could be she never had a public at the Met because it was Tobaldi's house Tobaldi didn't create that the audience loved Tobaldi Bing gave Stella every chance to sing the repertoire of Tobaldi's Tosca, Traviata and she knew this she was very bitter about it and her butterfly, that was the, the wonderful production of this wonderful uh, Japanese director. Her butterfly was wonderfully received, but it didn't have the adulation. When Tobaldi came and sang that next season after that, two butterflies, place went wild. So that season, she really insisted to being, she said, I want to take a solo curtain call, the second act of Butterfly, because this was not allowed in those days. And she was adamant about that. And he told her it wouldn't happen. She said, I insist I take a solo curtain call, which, which of course is basically the stage manager telling people to go out. 
And he told the stage manager, under no circumstances, I want that ruling observed. So she didn't get a solo curtain call. And the next role she was supposed to sing, she was also singing Shenyeda. Everybody sang Shenyeda that year. And uh, she canceled Shenyeda. And she left for Italy after that and never came back. And that's the reason we didn't have solo. Which is a tragedy because it wasn't more than a year or so later that he finally had to rescind the band. It didn't last more than two, three years. Big was a very strange man. I had always had dealings with him. I mean, I respected him. He had strange quirks in his personality. But his famous line in the beginning, I remember I was still a, a usher when he came, his famous comment to the press, because the press, and he always had fights, he loved that because he felt that real controversy is exciting, not with the Peter Gelb controversy, but an impresario. He brought in great singers. He said his ideal was a company where the stars are only in heaven, he was quoted. The stars are only in heaven. Then he proceeded after that to hire people like Tabaldi, people like uh, Delmonico, uh, George London. After he made this great statement the first year, it became a star-filled house. It's strange. And because he didn't compromise, but he forgets what he said. Then what he really resented was, I think it started with Tabaldi. She didn't ask for it. She came out. And the audience stood up and cheered. They went on forever, and there was all the standees rambunctious, running up front, screaming. And I think he thought it was taking away from the company. After five minutes of tremendous applause, and she'd be coming out of... Sometimes she'd have 12 or 13 curtain calls. You know, they kept on running her out. Mr. Baldi, her dark dress and long blue scarf. Renata Tabaldi on Maddalena. And Pizarro, Italy. For so many seasons at La Scala and in many performances here. Waving her hands to the enthusiastic audience. She'd bring both her hands up and she would put her fingers together against her thumb and just up and down, flapping back. And that became her signal to thank you, everybody, but I'm leaving, you know. This would happen to Tobaldi. It would happen to Delmonico, who was the biggest singer of anybody. I mean, when he was singing Celestaida, no matter where the stage director told him to stand, he'd be inching forward until when he sang the last note, full forte. There was no artistic pianissimo at the end. He would be practically in the prompter's box, blasting it out. If he was singing a duet in an opera like uh, Chenier with Milanov, all of a sudden, you'd see him drifting away somewhere. He wasn't with the soprano. He was there to, to show the public his voice. And, you know, it's like a torador in the ring. It's fun. It's fun. It's part of grand opera, I think. I, I mean, I, I love the big ovation, if they're sincere, and they usually are. I love Tribaldi's curtain call. People adored her. Uh, Delmonico was another one. By the time Corelli came... The old-timers had long disappeared. There were still big ovations, but never the ovations of the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Strange. It started to calm down a bit. One important debut, somebody I adored and I got to know so well, and almost the most important of the whole bunch, uh, was Anamafo.
Anna Maffa made a debut on a Saturday matinee. She was very young, 27. She had already created a sensation in Salzburg and Chicago and even at La Scala. And she made a debut as Violetta. broadcast didn't begin till early December, I think. And she had a wonderful partner, Cesare Valletti, a perfect Alfredo to a Violetta, very elegant singer. And not only beautiful, absolutely beautiful, with her own costume, an incredibly beautiful costume, and a voice that had the range, it had the color, it had all the drama you wanted. It was sort of a lyric coloratura. She always said that was an extension, and she sang the Semper Libra, no problems. adored her. She got a tremendous ovation. Her, her Traviata was the best one since Leech Albanese. And a very valuable asset to the company for, well, this was 50, 59. For about 10 or 12 years, her career didn't last that long after that. But uh, she made a big impact, a big impact. But she was so magnetic on the stage because, you know, she was so beautiful. But sometimes a very beautiful woman would rely on her beauty and, and try to pose and all. She didn't pose. Uh, Mary Costa, who I do, Mary Costa was dropped there beautiful too. Uh, she did a very good Traviata. She wanted to be a singer. She was a great success as a uh, on television, not singing, but she she wanted to be a singer. She had a good voice, but, but she had exceptional personality. But as Violetta, she would always, people would see how beautiful she was. Anna, she became Violetta. She was very lucky. Her whole training was from the Fulbright Scholarship when she was 19 or 20. She went to uh, uh, Italy, and by the time she was 21, this young uh, man, Mario Lanfranchi, who became a husband, was very much ahead of his time in television. Television was far ahead of America in the world of opera. In those days, they lip-synced a lot, even in this country, too. But by the time she was 21, they did a production on television of Butterfly, and created a sensation in all of Italy and anybody that saw it in Europe 
that so much so that Salzburg invited her, mind you, at that tender age to sing in Falstaff in Salzburg as Nanetta. She was a wonderful lyric spinto with a big extension. Years later, when they reissued uh, her aria records that she made in the late 50s, early 60s, and it had the Lock May Bell song, and she called me and she said, I, I can't believe I sang that. I don't remember having those high notes, but it was a natural part of her voice. She had tremendous pet control. It was a big debut and a very valuable artist at the Met in lots of repertoire, um, including Manon uh, Melisande, uh, two unusual roles. And of course, with the exception of Licha Albanese, who sang the most violettas in the history of the Met, she was the second one, I think, close behind, maybe 78, 76 performers. Licha's 80-some-odd, very fond of Anamafo. Those last years of life were so sad. I, I mean, we spoke to each other the last five years every day on the telephone. I knew her as an artist, but I got very close to her after her husband got sick and uh, before she became ill. For a while, I'd always have to hold my breath because she always talked about a comeback those years. She tried to sing a Tosca down in Florida with bad results. The big problem there was, and I, I wish I kept the recording, uh, the last RCA Victor recording that they always sent me records was her Thais. And I don't have it anymore, but I didn't want to keep it with the way she sounded, but Bobby Sarnoff, her husband, 
spend a lot of money trying to withdraw the copies of that. I did get from a friend of mine on LP, I'm not sure if that predates the Thai East by, or it probably just predates a little bit, and because of the role, it's the uh, L'Amour de Tre It's Siepi passes prime. I, I, I'm more worried about Siepi in that. Anamafo is a fiora. I don't listen to it much. I find that in the big monologue, Siepi, Siepi for the first time, I hear, hear vocal problems because they didn't sing much after that. But uh, Anna was, in her prime, was a very special singer. She was talking for since she was studying Norma. She wanted to make a comeback as Norma. This was after the Tosca. And I never said a word, she, and she said to me, do you think I should, for the first one, should I do it, do try it out in a small European house? I said, well, that sounds logical. Then another time she'd say, maybe I should offer it to, to La Scala or something like that. But all of a sudden, she did talk about coming back for about three, four years. Then she stopped talking about it, which I was happy. Just stopped talking, didn't say a word. When Krista Ludwig and, and Regine Crespan used to go to Zinka, and I used to tease them, I'd say, especially Regine, who's a great friend of mine, I'd say, you're going there to learn the secret of a piano. You'll never find it. She never really taught. She tried to explain how she did it, which Anna couldn't do. And, and Regine wasn't about to do it, neither was Krista. I've known so many people, including starting with Margaret Harshaw, Martha Lipton, George Otazzi, Jimmy King, all these people went to Bloomington and loved and stayed there. And Milanoff was there unhappily. She left so fast. 
She loved New York. I used to always make sure she sat on the aisle. I went with her lots of times, but I didn't like to go with her because I'm sitting there during a performance of, in Leontine's Prime, a performance of Forced of the Destino, and she's sitting on the aisle. We always sat, because I was box office manager, I always made sure we sat like, so she could walk down the aisle to about the 10th row and get her applause and always wanted to say, I'm going to go to the ladies' room and always made sure she'd never come in. When I wasn't with her, she would time it right before the lights went out. She'd walk down and get her ovation. Then she says in a loud voice, right in the middle of the convent scene, she said, she has no right to sing this opera. I mean, I got a little embarrassed. When she had her 50th anniversary, Bruce Crawford wanted her in the box, and he assumed I would be with her. I was afraid to go. I, I said, Zinka, she, she didn't want to sit in the box. She said, I want to sit with you in the orchestra. I said, Zinka, this is the general manager. It's your 50th anniversary. With Bidu, I was there with Bidu, of course, in the box for 50th anniversary with Louise Humphrey, the president of the Met. And there was and Bidu, and Bidu loved being in a center box, and Bruce Crawford came out. It was Manon. And he said, in the audience tonight, we have Vidu Sayal, made her debut as Manon, have 50 years ago this week. She was so delighted. This time, they had Zinka there. And I convinced her. I said, no, Zinka, you have to be with the general manager. And, and there's really no room for me. I, I was afraid she'd say something. <laughs> I forget. You know, she could have. I don't know. He never told me. It was 1989. I was afraid she'd make the same comment. And her speaking voice was pretty loud. In the 60s. I was sitting in a chair. On the couch next to me was Leonie, Zinka, Carl Berm, Hetty, his wife, and Roger and his mother, almost on the same couch. She said, there's certain people are singing actresses. <laughs> yeah. I was sitting there. I couldn't believe it. And thank God for Dr. Berm. And he sort of diverted that subject. And Leonie got it. She was not very gracious. In all the years after she retired, I went there at least once every two weeks for dinner. And she'd watch me like my mother. She'd watch me eat. You put your fork in this uh, chicken, and the butter was spread out. It was cholesterol alley. But she was a wonderful cook. Thank you for listening to the Operatic Pastcast. Visit the website at operaticpastcast.com. This is your producer, Donald Cullop. Thank you.